Welcome to Live in America's Town Hall, live constitutional conversations held here at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia and across America. I'm Tanea Tauber, Director of Town Hall Programs. Yesterday was the anniversary of the Supreme Court decision in Tinker v. Des Moines, a landmark First Amendment case that cemented the free speech rights of students. So we're sharing a past program featuring one of the students who brought that case, John Tinker. Tinker was joined by Karen Korematsu, daughter of the petitioner in Korematsu versus United States, and Cheryl Brown Henderson, daughter of the petitioner in Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka. They share what it's like to be an ordinary American at the center of some of the biggest moments in constitutional history. The National Constitution Center's Director of Education, Mike Adams, moderates. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the National Constitution Center on Constitution Day, the best day of the year to be here. Joining me on stage are people closely related to three landmark Supreme Court cases that all took place in the 20th century, so not that long ago. Um, in today's program, what we'll do is I'll introduce each of our panelists. They'll tell you a little bit of the background of the Supreme Court case in which their father, or in John's case, um, they themselves were involved in the case. They'll talk about what the court ruled, how it impacted our lives, and why those, those cases are still relevant today. Our first speaker um, to my left is Karen Korematsu. Karen Korematsu is the founder and executive director of the Fred T. Korematsu Institute, established in 2009 and the daughter of the late Fred T. Korematsu, petitioner in the landmark Supreme Court case Korematsu v. United States. Since her father's passing in 2005, Karen has carried on Fred's legacy as a civil rights advocate, public speaker, and public educator. She shares her passion for social justice and education at K-12 public and private schools, colleges and universities, law schools, teacher conferences, and organizations across the country. One of her most significant accomplishments was working to successfully establish in 2011 a perpetual Fred Korematsu Day of Civil Liberties and the Constitution for the state of California on January 30th. Fred Korematsu is the first Asian American in US history to have been honored with a statewide day. Um, please welcome Karen Korematsu. Um, so if you would like to begin by um, kind of giving us some of the, the background of the case or tell us a little bit the kind of the most important things you think our audience should know about the case Korematsu v. United States. Uh, well, thank you. And it's a pleasure to be with all of you today on Constitution Day. Uh, it's very exciting to talk to the next generation uh, about the importance of our Constitution. Um, my, my father, um, as was said, had the landmark Supreme Court case of Korematsu versus United States. Uh, it, as a result of the um, uh, World War II Japanese-American uh, incarceration. So after uh, the bombing of Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, President uh, Roosevelt uh, issued Executive Order 9066 on February 19, 1942 that gave the authority to the military to uh, forcibly remove anyone of Japanese ancestry from, from the West Coast and send them uh, to uh, American concentration camps across this country. Uh, 120,000 people were incarcerated. Two-thirds were American citizens. One-third were under the age of 18 and were, could be students like you. Uh, we, my father thought this was, uh, was, was wrong because all due process of law was denied. Uh, no one had been charged with a crime, no one had access to an attorney, uh, no one had their day in court. And so my father thought, why should he have to go to a prison camp when he had done nothing wrong? So he avoided the military orders, just, you know, just decided that it was went wrong and, and eventually a month later after everyone had been sent off to first the detention assembly centers uh, along the west coast he, he was arrested and uh, the uh, director uh, at that time of the northern california affiliate of the american civil liberties union uh, visited my father in jail and said you know would he be my father be willing to take his case if need be all the way to the supreme court and my father said yes, because he believed in this country and he believed in the Constitution. 
And so it took a couple years through appeals. And if you know about the judicial system, you know, do you, do you, have, to, you have to kind of lose at one level in order to, to go up? So eventually, um, you know, through the system, he ended, his case ended up in, in the Supreme Court. It took almost uh, two years. So on, on uh, December 18th, 1944, uh, the Supreme Court decision uh, was, was um, um, issued. And, but it was not unanimous. It was a six to three decision. So there were, there were you know, six um, justices that, that agreed that the, the military orders were constitutional and three did not. And the three dissenting opinions are the most recognized and studied today uh, and, and really the most relevant. So Justice Jackson referred to my father's Supreme Court case as this lies around um, uh, like a loaded weapon, ready for anyone to pick up and use with a plausible cause. And actually after 9-11 in 2001, my father's case was cited, Korematsu versus United States, as a possible reason to round up Arab and Muslim Americans and put them in American concentration camps. Uh, uh, Justice Murphy called it the ugly abyss of racism. Uh, Justice uh, Owen Roberts said this is unconstitutional. So clearly, the court was not you know, completely in, in, in agreement. Um, and, but my, my father, even though he was totally disappointed, never gave up hope that someday his case could be reopened. It took almost 40 years for that to happen. And, and after the, the Freedom of Information Act, um, you could go to the archives uh, in Washington, DC, and, and do the research of, uh, in, in the files of the government. And they found what was called the smoking gun, meaning they found the document that proved there was no military necessity at the time of my father's uh, arrest and of when the Japanese Americans were incarcerated. There was never any evidence of any spying or any espionage from the Japanese Americans. Um, and actually, at the time of my father's Supreme Court hearing in 1944, the Department of Justice had withheld evidence had destroyed evidence, and had altered evidence. So on that basis, there's a little unknown um, uh, judicial or, or um, um, law term called quorum nobis, writ of error quorum nobis. And quorum nobis means an error has been made before us, an error has been made before the court. Uh, and so on that basis, they were able to reopen my father's Supreme Court case uh, and it was proven that there was government misconduct at the time. And, and his, um, his federal conviction was overruled or, or vacated. And that means he no, no longer had a federal prison record. But his case is still on the Supreme Court record. When you, when you win at a federal court level, there was no basis to go up. You couldn't go up to, the, to let's say, a, 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 a court of appeals or back up to the Supreme Court. So it would take another precedent in order for it to, to be cited. But it's, it's been discredited, but it still has been referred to even to this day. So when the immigration was banned, my father's case has been um, noted in reference to creating this possible Muslim uh, registry that we, we, have, we have heard about. So, you know, my father never gave up hope that someday he could reopen up his Supreme Court case. And that 40 years is a long time to never give up hope. Uh, and, but I didn't even find out about my father's Supreme Court case until I was in high school. So I was 16 years old. No one had talked about my father's case. And uh, my friend was giving a book report uh, about the Japanese American incarceration and my father's case. And she cited Korematsu versus the United States. And I kind of you know, flinched and thought, oh, that's my name. <laughs> and I had 35 pairs of eyes turning around looking at me, and I'm shrugging my shoulders, because she, she didn't say Fred Korematsu, she only said Korematsu versus the United States. And I thought, oh, that's some black sheep of the family. And then I find out later that, that evening that it was indeed my father. Uh, and you know, he was waiting until I got older to understand what had happened at that time. But also, the whole Japanese American community never really spoke about that time in history because 
they had been arrested, they had been put in prison, and they carried the shame around them like they had done something wrong all those years. So it took my father's case to be reopened, to lift that, that shame and to regain their dignity. Um, and we do have time for one or two quick questions. Does anybody have any questions for Karen Korematsu about the case, its legacy, about her father? Yeah, we have a, and we'll be right down with a microphone in just a second. We have a question down here in the fourth row. Um, when you found out your, about your father's case, did you cry or did you feel emotional about it? That's a very good question. Um, I, didn't, I didn't cry. I, I didn't really know or understand what it meant to have a federal prison record. I never, you know, it's not like today you see all these shows on television about, you know, people getting arrested and crimes and all that. So I, I well, it was a long time ago. Um, and, uh, but I, I didn't, I, I just didn't know how to really digest the information. And, and so I just kept it to my, myself, my, my, the, the, my friends, my um, classmates the next day asked me, was that, was that about my father? And I just said yes, and I just kind of shrugged it off. Um, and so I really didn't start understanding about the impact of my father's case until, he, until the case was reopened in 1983. And at that time, I was 33 years old. So it, because I had, a lot of ra I had a lot of prejudice and racism um, that was against me growing up. So when I was in elementary school, and the teacher was talking about the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and they would show the bombing of Pearl Harbor. How many, how many of you students have seen the bombing of Pearl Harbor picture, right? So the teacher would throw that up on the, on the, on the, on the board, and, and, but she wouldn't say, you know, how do you treat people that have been really targeted, that live in this country? You know, how would you feel? She, she, there was never that kind of discussion. So the kids said it was my fault for the bombing of Pearl Harbor. It got, they would call me racist names. It got to the point where I couldn't even ride the school bus. Um, and so I, I felt a, a bit, you know, kind of ashamed. And then my brother, who was four years younger, had the same kind of experience. But we didn't even talk about it to each other until after we had graduated from high school. I think one more question in the middle here. Did your father feel happy when he got out of prison? Um, well, yes, I mean, he, 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 well, I would say what happened was he was arrested and he had a bail hearing in San Francisco. And even though he received bail, so in other words, somebody paid the money so that he could be, you know, kind of free until his, his, his case was heard before the court again, the military police was standing outside the courtroom. And because the executive orders and the exclusion orders had been issued, where no one from the, on the west coast of Japanese ancestry could stay, he was taken over to first the detention assembly center, which was like a prison, which was basically just horse stalls. So the horse, the, they just whitewashed the horse stalls and put people in there. And they were treated worse than, you know, they were treated inhumane and, and worse than animals. Um, and then he was sent over to one of the, the ten uh, uh, concentration camps in Topaz, Utah. So it wasn't until after, towards the end of the war, and went out of the war, that he was able to be free. Thank you. Um, Karen Korematsu, everyone. Um, our, the next case that we'll be looking at um, is a case you might be a little more familiar with, Brown v. Board of Education. Um, the, our next panelist is Cheryl Brown Henderson. Um, Cheryl is one of three daughters of the late Reverend Oliver L. Brown, who in the fall of 1950, along with 12 other parents led by attorneys for the NAACP, filed suit on behalf of their children against the local Board of Education. Their case joined with cases from Delaware, South Carolina, Virginia, and Washington, D.C. on appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. And on May 17, 1954, became known as the landmark decision Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas. Brown died in 1961 before knowing the impact his case would have on the nation. Cheryl is the founding president of the Brown Foundation for Educational Equity, Excellence, and Research, and owner of Brown & Associates Educational Consulting Firm. She has extensive background in education, business, and civic leadership, having served on and chaired various local, state, and national boards. 
In addition, she has two decades of experience in political advocacy, public policy implementation, and federal legislative development. In 1990, under her leadership, the foundation successfully worked with, with the United States Congress to establish the Brown v. Board of Education National Park in Topeka, which opened in May of 2004. Uh, please welcome Cheryl Brown Henderson. Thank you. Well, first of all, I want to thank the Constitution Center and thank all of you for your interest in being here, and Karen and our fellow panelists, Mr. Tinker. Uh, these Supreme Court decisions are very important. I can't even, I can't overstate the importance because they affect your lives every day. Brown versus the Board of Education in particular. Uh, how many of you are familiar with the 14th Amendment of the Constitution? Some of you are familiar. I would suggest you become familiar because what Supreme Court cases do is they interpret for us the meaning of certain part or of the Constitution, for example. Before Brown versus the Board of Education, we were living under a system of states' rights. I don't know if you know what that means. It means that the Supreme Court had not definitively interpreted for the country you know, the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. So states were just deciding kind of here and there what you could and couldn't do. You know, so everybody with blue shirts couldn't ride the bus to school, they had to walk. Everybody with brown hair, you know, had to go to a school with kids with only brown hair, just all over the place. And especially for African-American people, a lot of you watch the news today and you see the protest against how uh, African-American males in particular are treated. Well, Brown versus the Board of Education and a lot of the early activities, activism, was all about similar issues. See, it took over 100 years, a century, for a Brown versus the Board of Education to take place. First time parents, people like your parents, took to court the issue of why couldn't my kids go to any school? I'm paying taxes on every school, but you're assigning my child to school based solely on the color of their skin. 1849 in Boston, Massachusetts, the first documented case. So 105 years later in 1954, with Brown versus the Board of Education, we experienced a legal victory, not a social victory, but a legal victory. Now I'll explain what I mean by that in just a minute. Now Kansas is my home state, and I imagine many of you have never been to Kansas. Anybody ever been to Kansas? Ooh, did you stop? <laughs> because we realize it's not a place people go on vacation. But Kansas has been a very important state to the civil rights history of this country. Even before Brown v. Board of Education in 1954, in my state of Kansas, there were 11 school desegregation cases. Like no other state in the nation, African-American parents in Kansas were suing for the right for their children to attend any school, not waiting to be assigned to a school based solely on the color of their skin. Now what I mean by a legal victory, first of all, Brown was a collective action. It wasn't an, a single individual. A lot of the textbooks, a lot of the websites are absolutely wrong in how they talk about Brown v. Board. Now, my father didn't wake up one day and decide I'd had enough. You know, I'm going to sue the school board. It didn't happen that way. Brown v. Board was a collective action you know, led by the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, and their legal defense fund. They recruited people to be plaintiffs in these cases. As you heard in the intro, there were cases in Brown from Delaware, Kansas, Virginia, South Carolina, and Washington, D.C. One of the cases was organized by teenagers, led by a 16-year-old girl on her own who called for a strike at her segregated school for the right to have better facilities. The rest were parent-driven cases. So my father got involved because one day, just this simply, history knocked on our door in the form of a childhood friend who was now an attorney. They went to grade school together. They went to junior high together. They went to high school together. Uh, he, Charles went off to World War II and came back and became an attorney. One Sunday afternoon, he knocked on our door 
and asked my father if he'd be willing to join this case they were organizing to sue the school board so the children would no longer have to be assigned based on race the public school. Now my dad's first question was, and the girls in the room will appreciate this, because by the time they came to our home, everybody that had signed up, every parent, was a mom. You know, a married lady, but a mom. Rather than take the risk of losing your job, because back then, if you stood up for your rights, the larger community, the white community in particular, could fire you, cut off your credit, end your mortgage, you know, all sorts of things would happen if you took that kind of public stance. So oftentimes it would be the moms who were homemakers that didn't have that risk. So my dad's obvious question was, will there be more men? Because at that point he was the only one. Long story short, they assured him that they were going to continue asking people. By the fall of 1950, he ended up being the only man. And we think that's why the case ended up being named for him. It was not something my father did on his own. It was a collective action. He was asked to participate. Because when you look at the roster of litigants in the Kansas case, they were 12 women and one man, my father, Oliver Brown. Alphabetically, my father was not first, another one of those myths. But he was, in fact, the only man. And at that time, what we call gender politics, when men were the head of things, so we believe that he was, his name was placed at the top of the list because he was number 10 to sign on as a plaintiff. This is the situation. You see, one of the things we do as a nation, we have these amazing documents. We have the Declaration of Independence. We have the Bill of Rights. We have the Constitution. And they say wonderful things. But it takes an awful lot of work to make those words have meaning. So what you see, for example, now in the protest against the police killings and the cavalier murders of unarmed African-American men, the activism you see is necessary. So Brown v. Board of Education on May 17, 1954, at 12.52 p.m., uh, Earl Warren, who had been the governor of California, we have that connection, presided over the internment of the Japanese. Earl Warren announced to the country that Brown unanimously had been decided, surprising everybody that he would do what happened in California and turn around as a Supreme Court justice and work really hard to make sure every single justice voted yes in Brown v. Board of Education. He did that. But you see, when Brown was decided and that was announced, a lot of people in the country, particularly in certain parts of the country in the South, that didn't want African-Americans to have the same rights as white Americans. We're very unhappy about that. That's why it took a civil rights movement. That's why it took legislation before this really became real. While the words on the paper are meaningless unless they are enforced or unless there's some sort of action that makes them real. So Brown v. Board did this for everybody in the room, whether you're white, Hispanic, Latino, uh, native, Asian, disabled, doesn't matter. What Brown did for all of you is it defined that the people of this country cannot have their sovereign rights arbitrarily restricted by state and local governments. Brown did that for all of you. So it wasn't simply a matter of challenging the notion of segregated schools. It went much beyond that when you consider how our country was vacating, ignoring, if you will, the Constitution when it came to people of color, when it came to women. Some of you may be aware of the women's rights movement. So Brown v. Board, I believe, is considered a, a, the, one of the most important cases in the country because it was a beginning point. Brown made it possible for the march from Selma to Montgomery. One of the attorneys in Brown, Jack Greenberg, argued the right for them to march lawfully across that bridge after the first march when John Lewis was battered. So it, it takes more than simply legal pronouncements. So what I would encourage you to think about in your own lives, what is it you believe strongly about? What's going on in your school? What's going on in your church? What's going on in your community? 
that you can take a stand for, you can organize for. Because every single generation has a responsibility to pick up where we left off. I'm proud of the fact that Brown v. Board bears my father's name. There were hundreds of people along with him that were part of this. But I also know that the work is not done. If I can turn on my television in the last three years and see what I have been seeing, it's now your turn. You're here now. You know, we didn't create the challenges that we're confronted with oftentimes, but it's up to us to decide if they stop with us and what role we're going to pay. So I believe Brown is a case of, of activism, is a case that was a catalyst for so much that came after, but it's also a point of, of pride for, for me, much like Ms. Karamatsu, and I take that responsibility of maintaining the legacy very seriously. I think we have time for one question on this one. We have a hand right here in the fourth row. Was your dad um, arrested when he joined the group? No, that's a very good question. People always want to know what the repercussions were of Brown v. Board. Because how many of you have heard of the Little Rock Nine? OK. So you know there were some pretty unseemly things that happened when people tried to implement the court's decision in Brown versus the Board of Education. So people want to know, you know what happened to the parents that signed on the petition. In the Topeka case, there were no repercussions. You know, African Americans and whites and, and all groups lived together. Our, in, our neighborhoods were integrated. But you could play together all summer, play together all weekend, but on Monday morning, when it was time to go to school, you know, you had to go to the school that you were assigned to, and the white children in the neighborhood went to the school they were assigned to. So we were already living and worshiping and working together. So it made it easier, I think. So in May, when the court said, uh, legally, you could no longer segregate on the basis of race, in the fall, the schools in Topeka integrated immediately. However, in other parts of the country, like Little Rock, um, it, was a, it was a battle. It was another civil war in many ways. One of the cases in Brown, in Virginia, Davis v. Prince Edward County, uh, public school officials there closed public schools for five years, rather than allow them to integrate, rather than to comply. Now, let me give you the example. If you are eight years old and you're in third grade, five years later, school reopens, you're now 13. Do you go back to third grade? No. So unless you had a way to, to get out of the county, unless you had access to uh, some educators that came down from the north to set up little church-based schools, unless you could go live with a family, a lot of students went to live with Quaker families in different parts of the country, Philadelphia and elsewhere, uh, you didn't have any education, whether you were black or white. Because people were so committed to a certain way of life that they would rather do without than allow you to have an opportunity for, to be educated. So it, it, I think what we're seeing now is still sort of a pushback to Brown v. Board of Education 60 plus years later. Thank you, Cheryl Brown Henderson. And this brings us last but certainly not least to John Tinker. John Tinker was born in 1950 and raised by parents who believed strongly in the importance of socially responsible activism. In 1965, he participated in a public display of protest against the Vietnam War while a high school student. In 1969, John Tinker was a freshman at the University of Iowa when he received the news that he, his sister, Mary Beth, and their friend, Christopher Eckhart, had won their precedent-setting U.S. Supreme Court case upholding the First Amendment rights of public school students. Since that time, 48 years ago, John has led an interesting life. Uh, John has been a deckhand on a shrimp boat, driven a city bus, been chief engineer at two radio stations, traveled in Central America, organized a relief project in Nicaragua, and written database software for governmental institutions and several large corporations. For the past four years, John has been the chief engineer at KPIP Community Radio Station in Fayette, Missouri, where he lives with his wife and two children in a decommissioned public school building. 
He is in the initial stages of creating an educational foundation devoted to supporting the First Amendment rights of students and teachers within public schools and also to encouraging dialogue across our difficult social and political boundaries. Please welcome John Tinker. And thank you, Mike, and thank you to the Constitution Center for bringing us all together. It's a real honor to be together with these two wonderful women who are doing very important work, and I, I really appreciate it. I'm happy to meet you both. Um, I just wanted to start maybe, well, and look at this wonderful audience. <laughs> um, I really appreciate that you're interested, that all of you students are interested and the parents are interested in uh, constitutional rights, and that's what we're here for. I wanted to give you a little background to where our case came from. I was born in 1950, and you just heard that those were tough times for black people. Uh, in in uh, Atlantic, Iowa, which was a small town where my father was a Methodist minister, uh, there was one black family, and they were not allowed to swim in the public swimming pool. And my father, as the minister, took this issue to the city council and said, this has to be corrected. And instead, they said, you're being divisive in the community to bring that up. And so they uh, asked him to leave. He lost his pulpit in Atlantic, Iowa, and we moved to Des Moines. My mother was, grew up in South Texas and had witnessed a lot of racism. Uh, she was very concerned that we as children have black friends. And she worked on that and, and we did have black friends. And so we took our friends to church with us. Well, the same sort of thing happened in Des Moines, Iowa. And our father was asked to leave because they didn't want the controversy. This was in uh, 1962. And so my father worked for the Quakers then and the Quakers, as you may know, were very instrumental in the civil rights movement, the anti-slavery movement, uh, way back. And the Quakers just loved the fact that uh, our father was interested in those issues. And so he became the Peace Education Secretary for the American Friends Service Committee, which is a Quaker organization. And as Peace Education Secretary, his job was to organize lectures and symposia so that people could discuss uh, the important issues of the day. Now, the important issues in the mid-1960s, the most important issues were the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement. And so as children, uh, myself and, and my brothers and sisters, there were six of us all together, uh, were involved in civil rights demonstrations, anti-war demonstrations, and so on. And it was a very rich uh, childhood in a lot of ways, um, not monetarily, but in experiences. So in 1965, the war had really started, the war in Vietnam had really started to heat up. There was a bombing campaign called Rolling Thunder where they flew the big bombers, the big B-52 bombers and bombed in North Vietnam. Uh, a lot of people that I, that I was associated with um, thought that was a horrible thing and they decided to have a protest in Washington, D.C. And so I asked my parents if I could go to that protest with the two charter buses that went from Iowa. And I was given permission to go on that bus trip and be part of that big national demonstration. On the bus ride back, um, the people on the bus discussed what they might do to continue to protest the war. And it was decided that we would wear armbands, black armbands. Now, black armbands were a symbol of mourning, so if, uh, of mourning when someone dies. So if one of your family members had died or something like that, you might put a black armband on your arm just to let your friends and neighbors know that this sad event had happened in your life. So we decided to wear black armbands. 
And when we did, there, there was a group of high school students that I was closely associated with that was actually a Unitarian youth group. Uh, although I wasn't a Unitarian exactly, I, I was a Quaker by then. Uh, I also attended the Unitarian church and a lot of my friends were part of that group. And we all decided to wear black armbands. Well, one of our members told, uh, he wrote an article for the school newspaper in Des Moines, the school that he attended, and he wrote about what we were doing and why we were doing it. And for the reasons why, he listed two things, to mourn the deaths on both sides of the conflict and to encourage the, the idea of Robert Kennedy, Senator Robert Kennedy, uh, had proposed that there be a Christmas truce. And we thought that was really important because we thought if people could just stop fighting at some point, then maybe they would continue to not fight. So those were the two reasons we decided to wear the armbands. But when that article for the student newspaper found it, uh, the, the faculty advisor for the journalism uh, class saw that article, he took it to the principal of the school and the principal of the school got on the telephone to the principals of the other schools in, in Des Moines and said, uh, do you know this is going to happen and we better have a meeting. So they had a meeting and decided not to permit the wearing of the armbands. Well, we, we went ahead and wore the armbands anyway and got kicked out of school. After we were kicked out of school, we didn't quite know what to do about it. And so we called a lawyer, a local lawyer, who was involved with the Iowa Civil Liberties Union. And he said, you know, I think you have a federal case here. I think they violated your constitutional rights. But you should really go back to school so there's not truancy involved also. So we did that. We went back to school and we sued them in the federal court in Des Moines. And we testified and we told our stories and we lost. And it was pretty disappointing. But we decided to appeal to the circuit court, the Eighth Circuit Court in St. Louis. I hope I got that right. Um, and the circuit court had a strange situation. They were short one judge. So they only had eight judges. And those eight judges split four to four. It was a tie. And so we appealed, we asked the Supreme Court to hear our case and they agreed to hear our case. And the Supreme Court agreed with us, seven to two. So it was a pretty significant victory at the Supreme Court. And over the years, this, the case, Tinker v. Des Moines, has become perhaps the second case to Brown v. Board of, Board of Education of importance to public school students because it said that, I, I'm going to read the exact quote and get it right here. I have it written down. It can hardly be argued that either students or teachers shed their constitutional rights to either speech or expression at the schoolhouse gate. And so our case, Tinker v. Des Moines, is the case which gave all of you public school students your constitutional right to freedom of expression. And the, the public schools are what they call a special environment. So your rights to free speech are not the same in school as they would be out of school because the educational environment has to be there or nobody can learn anything. But the rule that they came up with and has now, it's called the Tinker Standard. And it is that in order for the school authorities to tell you you can't express yourself, they have to have material and substantial reasons to believe that it will disrupt the educational environment. Now, as you've heard, the law is just the law, and the way things turn out are not necessarily the way that the law says, and they don't necessarily follow the, uh, the rules and the decisions that, that the courts have made, and that's true today, too. I hear all the time about students who have to really stand up for their right and they have to inform perhaps their teachers or 
their principle about what their rights are. There was a case in uh, Dearborn, Michigan, where um, a student had worn a T-shirt. Um, it was actually back in the in uh, it was ten years ago, and it was uh, it had a picture of the president, and it <laughs> it said "war criminal" on it, and now that's controversial, and. He wore it for half of the day, and nothing happened at all. The teacher uh, brought him in and said, you have to take that shirt off or go home. And he said, Tinker v. Des Moines, I have a right to do this. <laughs> and she said, no, no, look at this. And she read to him from Black's dissenting opinion in our case and presented that to him as though that were the actual law. So I'm, I'm just saying this because a lot of times, or sometimes I should say, uh, school authorities aren't really sure of what the law is themselves. Now, a lot of them are, and I work uh, frequently with a professor who uh, teaches school law, and I've appeared uh, in his classes many, many times. And so there are many teachers and administrators who do know what the law is and will be supportive of you if you let them know what's going on. Um, I just uh, want to encourage everybody to pay attention to what's going on, to think for yourself about it. What do you really think about what's going on? And if you have an opinion that conflicts with the way you think, uh, if you have an opinion about the way things should be that you don't think is being followed, I would really encourage you to raise your voice and let people know what's going on. And, so anyway, I, I want to thank you again for being here. I think it's great. And, and if you have some questions, I'd be happy to try to answer them. Thank you. Um, we have a question in the back. Hi. Um, did you find it difficult attending the school that you were also suing? Did you have any experiences, I don't know, within school? Mm -hmm. uh, not really. Um, when I went back to school, uh, after we had been kicked out, I wore all black clothing for the rest of the year. Oh, wow. <laughs> Everybody knew what it meant. <laughs> but in instead of trouble, I actually had several teachers that asked me to talk to their classes about protests and, and the war in Vietnam and so on. So uh, it wasn't a horrible experience at all. And, uh, when I was being kicked out, I talked to the principal, and it was a long conversation. It was uh, maybe 45 minutes, and it was respectful. He had been a Korean War veteran, and he was concerned that perhaps I'd been listening to the wrong people. Maybe I didn't understand how important it is for the citizens to support their government in a time of war, and so on and so on. And I explained to him my reasons, and he, he listened to me. And at the end, he said something to me. He said, he said, you know, if you go back to class, take off that armband, go back to class, I'm not, there won't be any file opened on you. It'll, it'll be just like it didn't happen. But then he looked at me and he said, but I don't think you're going to do that, are you? <laughs> and, and years later, thinking about that, I thought, what a wonderful thing for him to have said. He basically was indicating to me that he understood that I was acting out of my conscience. And I thought that was, that's a wonderful way for principals, teachers, and others, adults, to, to treat kids. Anyway. John Tinker, everybody. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I think we have time for one or two more questions. At this point, I'll open it up if you have a question to any of our panelists or for all of our panelists, for Karen, Cheryl, or John. Um, I think we had a hand up right here in the middle. Thank you. I have a general question. I don't know if they still teach. I don't know if I want to stand up. <laughs> you guys are important. I'm not. But my question is, with all the students here and also with you people as good role models and examples for civic engagement and a participatory democracy, do they still teach civics in class? I understand they teach the test, and I'll say, well, where was George Washington when he did this, which might be important, might not. But to me, this is 
a participatory government. You mean that's, you know you don't even have to vote if you don't want to. There's a requirement, but if you want to participate in government or even run for office, this would be a good way of showing that it's important to be what people think. Sure. So I I think we could actually um, if. Karen or Cheryl, if you would like to address that since your foundations both, both work in this field. Karen? Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, especially for teachers out there, teachers, uh, thank you for bringing your students here. This is really important uh, because civic education, we all believe in civic education. That's why, that's why we're here. And uh, if you go to the KorematsuInstitute.org website, we have... Uh, Korematsu Institute curriculum kits that we send to teachers for free of charge. I don't care if you're in, we have elementary, middle school, and high school lesson plans. I don't, I'm, I don't care if you're in teach PE or chemistry. You know, it's all about social justice. And civics education is at, is at that root. So um, that's what we do for fundraising so that um, teachers have these extra tools. Because you're right, they don't, they don't have these materials and we want to be sure that we get these materials in, in, in teachers' hands um, and, and want to um, really support education across this country. So we've impacted all 50 states, over a million teachers, and half a million and a half students, and, and, uh, and even uh, 12 countries, because they looked at the Japanese-American incarceration and a lot of the issues in this country as human rights violations. And that's also important. Well, what Karen said is true of us as well, the Brown Foundation, brownvboard.org. <laughs> if you go to our website, the same thing. There are curriculum kits there, lesson plans, and all sorts of, of activities. We also do a curriculum newsletter called the Brown Quarterly. And the idea there was to capture the stories of the underrepresented groups in our textbooks. So there's women's histories, Asian American history, Native American history, um, Hispanic heritage, um, you know, all of that there in those newsletters. The thing is, I'm glad you mentioned teachers because one of the things that happened after Brown v. Board, uh, my father was interviewed and he was worried about the educators, about the teachers, because he wanted to know what happened to the black teachers in the black schools because the school district in our community decided they would integrate everybody. So what the school board decided they would do then is if you had a black teacher in your school, African-American for the first time, you had to call every parent of a white child at that grade level to find out if it was okay to be in that teacher's classroom. Well, what they oh, discovered was that it was not necessary because nobody said no. And this is a community where people are already, you know, pretty much living and working around each other. So they had that, that in place for one year. But not everybody was affected, is my point. The thing we have to understand is that education, and this is one thing that came out of Brown that I believe I'm most proud of. Because the court said that no child can reasonably be expected to succeed without an education. So when you walk into that classroom, you know, regardless of what you do, at some point in time, you need to wise up. Because what happens in that classroom is the most important thing you will ever do in your life. Believe me. So I hear kids talking about how I don't like the teacher, so I'm not going to do the work. How smart is that? Now, the teacher has her education or his education. You know, they're trying to help you get to that point and beyond. If you take teachers out of the mix, for example, what would we have? Total chaos and total stupidity. So teachers, in my view, are the most important people in this country because everything we know comes through them. You don't come here knowing how to read. You don't come here knowing how to write. You don't come here knowing how to speak in certain ways. You don't come here knowing how to do math. You know, every doctor had a teacher. We're in this room right now. Now, vocational education is another one of my soapboxes because no PhD put the carpet on this floor. No PhD wired this room. Somebody with a tray. So there's respect for all kind of education, but we need to have the utmost respect for our teachers, you know? We're so topsy-turvy in our value system. And I used to joke because I taught school back in the day. And I told everybody, the minute teachers start getting the kind of pay they deserve, like LeBron James money, I'm coming yeah. back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Amen. Did you want to... 
I just wanted to say our, our case was a First Amendment case, and I just want to stick up for discussion and dialogue and communication. My feeling is that our ability to communicate with each other is truly the foundation of the democracy. How can we have a democracy if we're not allowed to say what we think? I'm also working on, I'm, I'm working right now on creating a foundation. And besides educating students, teachers, and administrators about their rights to communicate, I would like to be involved in providing forums where people can actually do the communicating across the boundaries. So I'm imagining setting up situations where people with different opinions come into the same room and agree to be civil and discuss their issues with each other. And that, that's going to be the basis of, of what I hope comes from our effort. So thank you very much. So, um, in the interest of time, Mark, oh, I want to say one oh, more please, thing off the heels of this, yeah. because I want everybody to understand. You know, you don't have to like everybody. Not every black person likes every black person. Not every white person likes every white person. The problem is, you don't have a right to act on it. You know, you don't have to like me. You don't have to live down the street from me. But you have no right to decide. Yeah. You know, and, and to violate my rights as an individual citizen. So don't get us wrong. You know, what suggests this is not a kumbaya, everybody has to love everybody. It's right. just not going to happen. Mm -hmm. Because there's that human tendency to prejudge and discriminate against and all of that. But you do not have a right to act on it. Absolutely not. And, and I, I would just like to add that we need to learn to respect our differences and to appreciate them. Because once you understand, you know, about each other, then you're going to have a better sense of yourself. You know, go home and ask about your own stories of the struggles of your families and where they came from. We're all, most of us were immigrants um, and have that history, uh, unless you're, you're indigenous and, and, and Native American. And so once you understand other people, your own story, then you can appreciate other people's stories, but respect, you know, and, and, and what my, my, father's, my father said along this line is to stand up for what is right. Yeah. Protest, but not with violence. Otherwise, they won't listen to you. But don't be afraid to speak up. I think that's a pretty good place to end it. Please join me in thanking our panelists, Karen Formatu, Cheryl Brown Henderson, and John Tinker. This episode was engineered by Dave Stotts and produced by me, Tanea Tauber, and Jackie McDermott. If you enjoy this constitutional conversation, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And check out our companion podcast, We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate that's available wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber. Thank you.